This morning, we are going to be in the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles. And specifically, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. We're going to read one verse in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. Although we will, in the message this morning, no doubt be looking at uh, all of the verses that precede the verse that we read as our text verse. We're in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20, and we're going to read verse 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 26. And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakal, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Barakah unto this day. The title of the message is very simply, The Valley of Barakah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we could spend in your house today. We rejoice at the fact that you saved us and put within our hearts a desire to assemble together on the first day of the week for the purpose of worshiping you, singing praises unto you, preaching and teaching the word of God and Lord, letting our petitions and requests be made known unto you. We thank you, Lord, for this service. We thank you that your word promises that when your people gather together as a New Testament church, you meet with us and you speak to hearts. Lord, we need you today. God, I pray for forgiveness in my own life, and I pray that each person that's here this morning has taken time to make sure that they're right with you. And Lord, as we approach your house today, Lord, help us to remember that your house is a house of prayer. It's a house of praise. Lord, help us to think about how much we have to be thankful for today. And Lord, help us to be focused on praising you and rendering forth unto you the honor that you deserve, not only because of all that you do for us, but because of who you are. We thank you most of all for salvation through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Valley of Barakah. We as God's people should continually find ourselves in the Valley of Barakah. Now the Hebrew word Barakah literally means blessing. It means blessing. And in context of what is happening here, and we're going to go back and look at this in the uh, body and the, 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 the text, if you will, of the message. But the children of Judah find themselves in this valley of Barakah. Barakah, and the place that they're at, is described as a beautiful valley between Tekoa and Etham. And of course, this is a place where the people of God express their thanksgiving for the Lord's miraculous victory over the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the others that had assembled themselves together against God's people. Now after God had worked a miraculous work, and we're going to talk about the context of all of this, God's people wanted to be sure that they blessed Him. I don't mean when I say that they blessed him, I don't mean that they bestowed blessings upon God and somehow God was benefited by those blessings. What I mean is that they blessed God, they praised God. 
they rendered thanksgiving unto God for all that God had done for them. They knelt in the valley of Barakah and they took time to thank God and give Him the glory for all that had happened in their lives in the Lord's preservation of His people. I want to ask you this. When is the last time you were in the valley of Barakah? We think of valleys, right? And, and in Scripture, valleys are indicative of difficult times. You know, if I were to say to you this morning without giving you any context, if I were to say to you, now, emotionally, would you rather be on the mountaintop or would you rather be in the valley? And I'm pretty certain that all of us would say, you know, I'd rather be on the mountaintop. I'd rather be at Mount Carmel where God wrought all these miracles and victories by the hand of Elijah. I don't want to be down in the valley. But you know what? There's one valley that you and I should dwell in continually, and that's the valley of Barakah, the valley of blessing. When's the last time you were in the valley of Barakah? When's the last time you took time to thank God for all that He has done for you in your life. You know, you know when you're more apt to dwell in the valley of Barakah? When you're in trouble and God delivers you. And that's exactly what we find here in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. The children of Judah were in the valley of Barakah. And this morning I want us to consider three factors three factors that led them to the valley of Barakah. The first factor, the enemy's designs. The enemy's designs. The second factor, Jehoshaphat's dismay. And then the third factor, the Lord's deliverance. Three factors that led the children of Judah to the valley of Barakah. And you know what? We ought to consider these as as applicable in our own lives. That these factors should lead us to the valley of Barakah. Let's, let's look at these factors individually. The first factor, we really see it interspersed throughout the entire chapter, but mainly mentioned in verses 1 and 2. What led to the children of Judah dwelling and being in the valley of Barakah? Well, it was first of all the enemy's design. The enemy's designs. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20 together here. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 1. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat saying, there cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. Now, we hope I hope we know who Jehoshaphat is, right? King Jehoshaphat. He was one of the five or six godly kings that reigned over the, uh, the kingdom of Judah. And if you recall, just to give you context, when uh, Solomon passed away, 
and his son took the throne, there was a division because of the way that he treated the people of God, Rehoboam. So there's this division in the kingdom, and the kingdom was split in half. And ten tribes followed uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and two tribes followed the southern kingdom of Judah. And so you find in Scripture that Israel is often referred to as Israel, including all of the twelve tribes, but a, a lot of times it's referred to as the northern kingdom, Israel, the ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, the two tribes. And, and Jehoshaphat was one of those five or six godly kings that reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. Now what do we find? We find that Judah here receives word, Jehoshaphat receives word that the adversaries of the people of God have an intention to attack Judah. And we see here who it is that's going to attack them. Notice it's Moab. It amazes me the way the Lord kind of works behind the scenes in what we're studying in the afternoon service and what we're preaching on. And I can guarantee you that when the Lord impressed upon my heart a few weeks ago to preach on this, that I did not in any way intend to tie it into the study of Ruth. But where was Ruth and Orpah and Elimelech and Naomi and Kelon and Malion? They were in Moab. And last week, if you recall, we went through in our Sunday afternoon study of Ruth, we went through the history of Moab. And Moab and the Moabites were the enemies of the people of God for the majority of the time. And so we find it's Moab, the children of Moab, and the children of Ammon. Well, who were the the Moabites and the Ammonites? They were the descendants and the offspring of that incestuous relationship that took place between Lot and his daughters. And you can go back to Genesis 19 and read all about that. But it's the Moabites and the Ammonites that are produced as a result of that. And so the enemies or the adversaries of the people of God intend to attack the people of God. And I'm saying to you that this is one factor that led them to the Valley of Barakah. Watch. The enemy's design, first of all, is that they form a confederacy. They form a confederacy. Look at verse 1. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. And so they formed this confederacy. Multiple nations joined together. Notice these were the common foes of the Israelites and of Judah. It's the Moabites, it's the Ammonites. But notice as well in verse number 1 it says, with them other besides the Ammonites. It could have been, and it is surmised by some commentators, that these were the Edomites that had joined together with the Moabites and the Ammonites because we find that uh, the children of Seir that are discussed in verse 10 that join up with the Moabites and the Ammonites, we find that Seir, Mount Seir, and the, the land of Seir was given to the people of Esau. And who are the who are the descendants of Esau? The Edomites, right? And so you have all these common foes that are gathered together to wage battle against the Lord's people. Do you know that in your life right now, there are common foes that are plotting against you and intending to attack you? 
And they might be spiritual wickedness in high places. And what does spiritual wickedness in high places do? It influences lost people here on this earth and frankly sometimes saved people. And they congregate together and they form a confederacy to attack the people of God. I want you to understand that if that's happening and God delivers you, you should wind up in the valley of Barakah. You should give God honor and glory. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. And so we look at the enemy's designs. They form a confederacy. This confederacy is made of common foes of the children of Judah. And it is a colossal force. You know, it's one thing if you have to defend yourself one-on-one. Okay? And you know what? I like my chances one-on-one. I like my chances one-on-one, whether it's a big guy or a little guy. Now, I might take a whooping, but at least one-on-one, it's a fair fight, okay? You know what the enemy does? The enemy works behind the scenes and gets together a group, and you're confronted with a number that is intended to be intimidating. Why do we say that there was a colossal force forming against the children of Judah? Well, look at verse 2. It says... Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee. And then in verse number 15, we find again, the Bible makes mention of this great multitude. This was a large number that was coming out, joined in affinity to attack Judah. Can you imagine what Jehoshaphat was thinking when he received word of this? And we're going to actually look at that in our next point. Our enemies will join in affinity to attack. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalms 3, or the third Psalm. And I'd like for us to just read a few of the verses in Psalm 3. And I will tell you, I can't help but read this Psalm and not have the, 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 the Scripture song that we used to sing over in Ohio come to memory. I will spare you this morning of singing that. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'll just see how it goes. But notice Psalm 3. Notice verse 1. And of course this is a psalm of David when Absalom had wrought rebellion in the kingdom and was attempting to take the kingdom from his father. Psalm 3 verse 1. Watch the wording. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say to my soul, There is no help for him in God, Selah, or contemplate on this. And then notice down in verse number 6, David says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. David understanding that there's a great multitude, a colossal force that is formed against him vows that he will trust in the Lord and that he will look to the Lord for his salvation. Notice verses 7 and 8 of Psalms 3. Verse 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. David understood that there would be an amalgamation and an affiliation amongst the ungodly that would seek to come after him. And he was, in fact, experiencing this in his own life at this time. 
Listen to what Brother Spurgeon wrote in the Treasury of David in reference to this passage here, Psalms 3. Spurgeon writes, Their hosts are far superior to mine. Their numbers are too great for my reckoning. Let us here recall to our memory the innumerable host which beset our divine Redeemer, the legions of our sins, the armies of fiends, the crowd of bodily pains, the host of spiritual sorrows, and all the allies of death and hell set themselves in battle against the Son of Man. Oh, how precious to know and believe that He has routed their hosts and trodden them down in His anger. And so it is. We can have faith and trust in the Lord. The, the children of Judah, the, the, the southern kingdom, sees by Jehoshaphat and what is reported back to Jehoshaphat, they see the intentions of the enemies, this great number that forms up against them. And you know what it led to? The Valley of Barakah. All of this led to the Valley of Barakah. Beloved, we can look at situations in our own lives and be distressed at what's happening and be intimidated at what's happening and be be uh, depressed about what's happening. Or we could say, you know what, I'm going to go to the Valley of Barakah and I'm going to give thanks unto the Lord. So we see here that the enemy have these designs. They form a confederacy and it, they were focused on casting out and consuming the children of Judah. Notice it says that they came out against Jehoshaphat to battle. Well, what happens in a battle when nation is fighting against nation? There's going to be some bloodshed. And the ultimate design and the ultimate goal of the nation that is involved in warfare is to destroy the other nation so that they might continue to exist. The enemies of the children of God wanted to consume them and they wanted to cast them out of their own land. Notice in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20, verses 10 and 11. Notice 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 10 and 11. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession which thou hast given us to inherit. Jehoshaphat is praying unto the Lord and he's saying, we had mercy on them, but they have no mercy on us. Their intent is to thrust us and cast us out of the land that you have given to us for a possession. Now again, think about where they are at at this point and understand that this is a factor in leading them to the valley of Barakah. Can you see off in the distance that though you might be in a difficult situation right now and everybody's ganging up against you and you're in a, in a rough spot, do you know and do you see that that can lead you to the valley of Barakah? Thanking and praising the Lord. The first factor, the enemy's designs. But notice the second factor in the children of Israel making it to the valley of Barakah. We see Jehoshaphat's dismay. Jehoshaphat's dismay. Now, there's a number of verses that we're going to read here in chapter number 20, but I want us to start off by simply looking at verse 3. Verse 3. Excuse me for a moment. Look at verse 3. And Jehoshaphat feared. Jehoshaphat feared. What we're looking at here is Jehoshaphat's 
dismay. The Bible says that Jehoshaphat feared when he heard about the enemies of the Lord assembling together. And notice what uh, the uh, prophet, the, the man that's filled with the Spirit of God, Jehaziel, and we're going to talk about him a little bit later on, but notice, notice what he says in verse 15. In verse 15, he delivers this message, and he says in the middle of verse 15, Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that there was not only fear, but there was dismay with Jehoshaphat and the people of God. Now, the word dismay in the Bible, and here in verse number 15, this word dismayed, in the Hebrew, it literally means to fall prostrate, to break down through fear, to be held in terror. Have you ever had that instance in your life? You receive word of something or you're aware of something that's going on and you literally, it's like you all the wind is taken out of you and you just fall to your knees. Maybe not physically, but certainly emotionally and spiritually. I think of oftentimes the case of parents that receive word that their, their child has been murdered or, or, or killed or somehow passed away. And you hear their testimony, and very oftentimes it just buckles their knee, they fall to the ground. That's dismay. And what we find here is that Jehoshaphat is in dismay. How do we know he's in dismay? He fears. Jehaziel says, don't be fearful or be dismayed. And then notice in verse number 12, Jehoshaphat himself says to the Lord uh, in, in verse number 12, neither know we what to do. You ever been in a situation where you don't have any idea what to do? You are in fear. You are in dismay. You can't make uh, heads or tails. You don't know which way to turn. You don't have any idea what to do. This is the condition of Jehoshaphat and the people of God. They are in terror as to what's going to happen when the Ammonites, the Moabites, and this great multitude comes against them to destroy them. Well, you know what? Jehoshaphat was in dismay, first of all, because of the potential slaughter. The potential slaughter. It is very clear that Jehoshaphat is fearing the worst. That Judah was not able to withstand the attack of this assembled fighting force. Very often in our own lives, we are in dismay because of what we consider to be a potential slaughter. What is going to happen? The worst is going to happen. There's no way that I can stand against this great assembled multitude. Death is sure. Destruction is sure. The worst that could possibly happen is going to happen. That's what Jehoshaphat was thinking. And yet notice, it could have been as well that Jehoshaphat was dismayed and in fear, not only because of the potential slaughter, but and pay attention to this one. Because of his past sin. Now, what do we know about Jehoshaphat? We know that Jehoshaphat formed an affinity with Ahab. And we know that Jehoshaphat, who was supposed to separate from the wicked king Ahab, formed an affinity and there was intermarriage that was taking place between the, uh, the, the sons of Jehoshaphat and the daughters of 
Ahab. And remember, King Ahab was a wicked king of Israel. In fact, Israel had no godly kings in their history when the kingdom was divided. And we find that God had given warning on multiple occasions to Jehoshaphat about what he was doing and about the fact that there would eventually be a payday someday for what he had done. Listen to this in 2 Chronicles chapter number 19 and verse 2. In 2 Chronicles 19 verse 2, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly? And love them that hate the Lord. Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. The Lord had promised to Jehoshaphat that there would be some chastening that would come because of what he had did and his lack of separation with Ahab and his joining in affinity with Ahab. You know what? This is a question that we should all ask ourselves. Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? How can you be in affinity with somebody who hates me and claim to be my friend? Let's just, let's just be real. You can't play both sides against the middle. You're going to have to make a choice. How can you link up with those that hate the Lord? How can you, as the prophet says from the Lord... How can you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? You know what the result of that is? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. You have to understand that every decision that you make and everything that you do is accounted for in the eyes of the Lord. And we don't get away with anything. It's not like, it's not like oh, the, the Lord's too busy to see. I'll run over here in this corner and do this. Kids do that, don't they? Wyatt does that, you know, he's like, oh, nobody's looking, I can take this that I'm not supposed to have. Oh, I'll cover myself so you can't see. Yeah, we see. God sees. And so Jehoshaphat here, he's dismayed. Could he be thinking that, man, what I have done has led to this for the children of God? And you also have to understand that your, your sin affects others. It has an effect on others. So Jehoshaphat is dismayed. The potential slaughter and the past sin. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't lay down and say there is no hope. Here's what he does in the midst of his dismay. He decides to pray and seek after the Lord. Look at uh, verse 3 in uh, 2 Chronicles 20. Verse 3. And Jehoshaphat feared. Now watch and set himself to seek the Lord. And you know what the influence is that he had on the people of God here? Look at verse number 4. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. There are times in our lives where we have to be an example to others in seeking the Lord and saying, you know what, we refuse to give in to our fleshly uh, dismay, our fleshly fear, we're going to seek God's face. And that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. And I want you to notice the different ways in which he prayed and sought the Lord. First of all, he relegated the need for sustenance. 
because it says in verse 3, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. We've talked about this recently. How important is it that fasting be a part of our spiritual lives? It doesn't have to be fasting for 40 days and 40 nights or 3 days and 3 nights. You can fast uh, by sacrificing a meal or a particular uh, form of sustenance. But the idea behind fasting is that we are relying completely on God to meet the need. And so he, he relegated sustenance in his praying and seeking the Lord. And then notice, he reverted to the sanctuary of God. In verse number 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. You know what? You never make it to the valley of Barakah when you neglect the house of God. It doesn't work that way. You cannot neglect the house of God and somehow think that you're still going to make it to the valley of Barakah. You can't neglect the house of God and think that somehow God is going to deliver you from your enemies. God might well teach you a lesson. A hard lesson that you need to learn. Put me first. Seek my kingdom. And I'll add everything else to you. And there are problems when we don't do that. In praying and seeking the Lord, he reverted to the sanctuary and he stood in the midst of God's house. And then notice, he recited God's sovereignty. In verses 6 and 7, look at what uh, Jehoshaphat prays. And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? What is, what is Jehoshaphat reciting? The sovereignty of God. God rules over the inhabitants of this earth and he can do who he, what he pleases with who he pleases. And then notice in verses 8 and 9, so, uh, Jehoshaphat references their situation because he says, And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary, that's the temple, therein for thy name, saying, If when evil come upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Now I want you to remember this verse in particular for our afternoon study of Ruth. Because again, it's amazing how the Lord ties all of this together. But you see that Solomon is saying, and you could for your own study if you wanted to, go back to Second Chronicles chapter 6. We're not going to look at this today, but when the temple was dedicated, Solomon prayed this prayer unto God, and the Shekinah glory of God appeared in the temple, and God accepted what uh, Solomon had said, and, and here we find Jehoshaphat repeating the words that Solomon prayed in the dedication of the temple. He is referencing their situation. He is saying that, you know what? You said that you would do this. We're in this situation. The sword has come upon us. It's good to reference our situation as we pray and seek the Lord. And then notice, he requests a sentence. In verse number 12, he prays, And now behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, will thou not judge them? And I say to you that sometimes we might be hesitant to pray this prayer. And that's not a wrong prayer. 
Do you realize it's not a... God, would, would, would you judge the ungodly? Would you bring the ungodly down? It's not wrong to pray that the ungodly influences for our nation would be brought down. That the people of God would be delivered from the ungodly leadership that we have. And the ungodly influences that we have. Do you think it's wrong to pray that those that are abusing our children in public schools by what they're teaching and inculcating to them, do you think that it's wrong to pray that they would be removed out of the way? I'm not talking about praying that they'd be dead. I'm talking about praying that God would judge them and remove them from the situation so that we wouldn't have this type of situation in our nation. Last week we preached how that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And when righteousness exalts a nation, God is pleased with that nation and protects that nation. But when sin is prevalent, when sin is prevalent, it's a problem. It's a reproach. It's a shame. I gave you many quotes last week from our founding fathers. I want you to listen to this one from Samuel Adams, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He said, and, is it, and as it is our duty to extend our wishes to the happiness of the great family of man, I conceive that we cannot better express ourselves than by humbly supplicating the supreme ruler, by, in, all, in caps by the way, the supreme ruler of the world, that the rod of tyrants may be broken to pieces, and the oppressed made free again, and that wars may cease in all the earth, and that the confusions that are and have been among nations may be overruled by promoting and speedily bringing on that holy and happy period when the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be everywhere established and all people everywhere willingly bow to the scepter of Him who is Prince of Peace. Wow! Can you imagine anybody in our government saying that today? Samuel Adams was not only a signer of the Declaration of Independence, but he was governor of Massachusetts. And this comes from a proclamation proclaiming a day of fasting for the state of Massachusetts on March 20th, 1797. He understood the importance of praying and seeking God and proclaiming a fast and asking for judgment upon those that would trouble the land. Jehoshaphat, lastly, rested in submission to the will of God. Look at the last part of verse 12 and then verse 13. For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. They're watching what the king's going to say and do. And the, and the king says... <laughs> We are in dismay. We don't know what to do. We have no might against this great company and this great multitude. We don't know what to do, but one thing we will do is we will look to you and we will wait on you. And what you say we will do and where you tell us to go, we will go. He rested in submission to the Lord. When's the last time you submitted to the Lord in anything? In anything. Whether it be your job what you should do, decisions that you make in, in your family life. When's the last time you, you submitted to the Lord and said, you know what, God, I don't know what to do on this, but my eyes are on you. I'm going to watch and see what you tell me to do. Wow. 
Jehoshaphat prayed and sought the Lord. We've looked at the first two factors. The designs of the enemy. Jehoshaphat's dismay. And that leads us to the last factor that led the children of God, Judah, to the valley of Barakah. And that's the Lord's deliverance. The Lord's deliverance. The Lord knew where they were at. The Lord heard the prayer of the people of God and of Jehoshaphat. And the Lord determined that He would act. The children of Judah were in the valley of Barakah because God had delivered them. Now watch. This deliverance was announced by a spirit-led servant. Look at verse number 14. And I told you we're going to go through all the verses leading up to our text verse. Notice verse number 14. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. So here's one man that is led by the Spirit of God and here's the message that God has to deliver. And you know what we ought to do? We ought to listen to men who are moved by the Spirit of God. Men who have the, the ear of God that can tell us what the Word of God has to say that will lead us to trust in the Lord and not in an arm of flesh or in our own selves. That was Jehaziel. And then notice, this deliverance would be absent the strivings of Judah. It would be absent the strivings of Judah. Watch what Jehaziel says. Verse 15. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You know what? When you're in a battle that is the Lord's, you can rest assured that the Lord is going to be with you in that battle. You remember when David was facing Goliath? And here's this little... You know, this little fella, and I could say little fella because apparently he wasn't the size of his brethren. And all of his brethren are out there with the army of Israel and they're shaking in their boots and quaking because of the Philistine champion Goliath. And David comes and he sees what's going on and he believes that God is going to use him to deliver the Israelites and defeat their cha- the Philistine's champion Goliath. And what, is, what does David say? When he approaches Goliath. Man, listen. You want a you want a lesson on courage. Go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 17, where David trusts in God. And he's not afraid to say to this this uh, behemoth of a man, and I, I could just envision it in my own mind. David goes up and he's looking up at that guy, and he says, You know what? God's with me and I'm going to take your head off today. And David wasn't talking trash. He was saying what God was going to do. And then how about this? David said this to Goliath. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Is this not what Jehoshaphat says in verse number, or Jehaziel says in verse number 15? For the battle is not yours, but God's. You know our problem today, why we lack such action and activity by the people of God, is that we're not engaged in the battle that the Lord wants us to fight oftentimes. 
It must be the Lord's battle. We're fighting about all sorts of stupid stuff in the Lord's churches and amongst the Lord's churches. And we fight and battle over stuff that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And no wonder we suffered defeat. That battle is not the Lord's. Hey, let me ask you this. What battles are you in? Are those battles the Lord's? See, you have, no, you have no promise of the Lord having your back if your battles are not the Lord's battles. Make sure that you're walking in a way where you can say confidently like David said, the battle is the Lord's. And He will give you into our hands. And Jehaziel, for the battle is not yours, but God's. So notice here in verse 16 and 17, we're continuing this thought that this deliverance by the Lord be absent the strivings of Israel. Jehaziel continues and he says, Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jerel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now, what is, what is Judah told to do? To go out. And we got to go out. And we got to stand. Notice, notice Jehaziel says, Set yourselves, stand ye still. And you know what will happen? The Lord will deliver. And you'll see, the, you'll see the salvation of the Lord. We were over at uh, Faith Baptist Church a few weeks back, and I preached the message on standing fast. And, and the compounding effect of standing fast in the Lord. Are we standing fast? Are we going out? And, and, and standing our post and doing what we're supposed to do and relying on the Lord to bring the victory. That's what Judah was supposed to do. This deliverance would be absent the strivings of Israel and Judah. And then notice that adoration and trust at the announcement is the result of what Jehaziel did. Notice that in verses 18 through 21. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now, now, stop for a minute. Remember, this is before the deliverance. This is adoration and trust at the announcement of the deliverance. They count it as being true. God hasn't done it yet, but they adore and trust the Lord. And then notice verse 19 through 21. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. So shall you be established. Believe His prophets. So shall ye prosper. Man, that charges me up. Let's go. I'm ready to go. Who's on the Lord's side? You don't hear them saying, well now, you know, the message that Jehaziel delivered, I mean, it might or might not be right. After all, you know, after he said it, we found some later renditions of what he said. And maybe those are right and not what Jehaziel said. Shame on the preacher that gets up and casts doubt on the Word of God. Oh, you know, this new version is better than the authorized version. Even though the authorized version is all we had, for 200 something years and God blessed miraculously now all of a sudden we have to rely on the English Standard Version 
which is a revision based upon the Revised Standard Version of 1971. And the Revised Standard Version Committee said that the Bible that I use, and I believe is the infallible, inspired, and errant Word of God, has errors in it. Shame on me. May God strike me. If I ever get in front of the people of God and say, you know, you can't trust your Bible. It's got errors in it. God help us. When these are the men that stand in pulpits today, and I'm talking about in our circles, stand in pulpits today and say, well, you know, the Bible you have has errors. This is the best we've got. Oh, poor God. God didn't have the power to preserve His Word. And so the best that we have is what you have to listen to me tell you is the best. No, I want the Bible in the English language that God used and our Baptist forefathers believed was the inspired and errant infallible Word of God. Now, people don't like that. And that's okay. I don't need to be everybody's friend. I'd rather be friends with God. And so notice here, that they trusted the Lord. They adored the Lord. There was praise. And Jehoshaphat says, Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe, these, believe His prophets, so shall you prosper. And then notice in verses 22 through 24, an annihilating ambush that is set by the Lord as He delivers. Verses 22 through 24, And when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Somehow... Something happened between Ammon and Moab who were confederate together and the children of Mount Seir. And somehow the Ammonites and the Moabites turned on the children of Mount Seir and destroyed them. And then there was so much confusion in the battle that they wind up slaying one another. And the children of Judah never had to lift a finger in the fight. What Jehaziel said when he said, it's not necessary. You won't need to go out and lift a finger. It's true. God wrought the victory. The deliverance was by the Lord. And then notice, there was an abundance of spoil recovered from the dead. In verse 25, And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away and they were three days in the gathering of the spoil. It was so much. You think if that happened to you, you'd praise God? You think you might wind up in the Valley of Barakah? Can you imagine if you went home today, and you're sitting in your easy chair, and you look out on your front porch, and the Amazon delivery guy's there, and he's filling your whole front yard with packages. And you go out and you say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? I didn't order all this stuff. Yeah, we know you didn't order. Somebody, somebody ordered it, told us to deliver it here. That's a spoil. And they go and they find these bodies, and they, for three days they spoil and take this booty, if you will, of the Lord. The Lord delivered them completely 
and holy. And for that, verse 26, and on the fourth day, they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah, the valley of blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Barakah unto this day. When's the last time you were in the valley of Barakah? Hey, listen. We sing that song. Down in the valley with my Savior I would go. Well, you know what? Let's go with Him in the valley of Barakah. Let's praise and magnify the name of the Lord. You know how we get there? What well, could be the enemy's designs? could be our dismay and the Lord's deliverance. Man, listen. What a great day today is. This is the Lord's. This is the day that the Lord had made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. And you know what brings us greater rejoicing? Being able to be in the house of God and worship the God of gods, the Almighty God that is revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. Meet me in the valley of Barakah. Let's pray.